Oh, Dr. Lucky. <laughs> Where are you? Paige and Dr. Lucky. I've got today's headline. <laughs> headline. <laughs> I haven't had a lot of welcomes and opportunities. That's good. Welcome to Which Game First, where we boldly explore the hilariously huge world of board games. Did we unearth any hidden treasures you've been missing out on? Let's find out. First up this week, we play a deadly game of cat and mouse throughout the house in Kill Dr. Lucky. Next up, we aim to become fat cat rail barons as we build our tracks to riches in 18 Lilliput. And lastly, we team up on trivia to narrow down the right answers in The Perfect Ten. I'm your host, Celeste DeAngelis. Now let's meet the rest of our brave and intrepid panel. Hi, I'm Evan Bernstein. And if I told you what the theme of this podcast almost became, you wouldn't believe me. Hi, I'm Ed Povlitis. We talked about that on the post show. Everyone was done. I'm Joe Unfried. Yep. Hi, I'm Mike Grenier, and are we pitching the post-show already? <laughs> hey, Ed, what's new on our website lately? We got some great news about games coming soon. Check it out on our news feed on our website, whichgamefirst.com. And please give us a review wherever you read about Which Game First. Now on to the show. Our first game up this week is Kill Dr. Lucky, designed by James Ernest, published by Cheap Ass Games in 1996, number of players 3 to 8, ages 12 and up, playtime 20 to 40 minutes. Okay, when we shined a flashlight across this find, what were our first impressions? Evan? Uh, Dr. Lucky, I need to speak with you in this room, alone, out of view of everyone else. Oh, and can you hand me that ice pick, please? Ed? This doctor doesn't sound all that lucky with everyone trying to kill him. Joe? If I were at this guy's house and wanted him dead, well, once I found out how many of his other guests wanted to see him dead, I'd probably switch gears from a active murder conspiracy to a more passive agenda of murder encouragement. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> Mike? This game's come a long way. I can't wait to see how this version plays. Everything about the look of this game nails the clue in reverse theme. But before we sneak into the atrium with our frozen flounder, Evan, tell us a little bit about how it's played. In Kill Dr. Lucky, you play a person that hates Dr. Lucky. Maybe he left you out of his will. Maybe he killed your pet rock. Whatever the reason, you want him dead. Unfortunately, so do the other players. Since you don't want to go to jail, none of us do, you need to make your murder attempt in secret. So if anybody can see you, the doctor gets to live until the next time. Players move around the mansion, collecting murder weapons and failure cards and seeking areas where they can be alone with the doctor. If a player is able to make an attempt on Dr. Lucky's life, the other players may use their failure cards with clovers on them to give the doctor enough luck to avoid his demise. Each failure makes a player stronger on their next attempt. The first person to kill Dr. Lucky wins the game. Don't forget to hide the evidence. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's easy to hide the flounder as not being a murder weapon, I guess. You just eat, yeah, you just, hey, what are we having for dinner tonight? Oh. <laughs> murder flounder. Oh, did I say murder? Oh, oh whoops, I meant just flounder. Whoops, I meant oh, flounder. Oh, did I eat the murder weapon? <laughs> That's brilliant. Again? <laughs> 
That is brilliant, actually. <laughs> so the board of this game looks a lot like the Clue board. Uh, no surprise. You know, they do bill it as a parody of Clue, which I think it achieves. What do you guys think? Yeah, take some of the terrible aspects of Clue away, though, where you don't have <laughs> 10 spaces between one room and another room to right. get there. So you're not standing in the hallway. You never stand in the hallway in this game. No. With this game, you move to a room with no problem at all. Practically no problem. They have a lot of different ways you can fold the board up for the different number of players and how fast you want the game to play. And we folded it down to its smallest version because we wanted to get through it quickly. Um, and in that version, there's certain rooms where you can literally use one move to get from the room you're in to any room on the board. Yeah, I loved the speed of play. That said, everybody was everywhere all the time. So you never got a chance to kill Dr. Lucky. Because it is so hard on that small board with five players to not get spotted. Yeah. Right. But I mean, we did manage to get enough, enough uh, attempts on Dr. Lucky for somebody to win. Yeah. And what did you guys think of the mechanic where it can change the order of people's turns depending on where Dr. Lucky is. If he comes into the room with you, it automatically becomes your turn. Since it becomes your turn when Dr. Lucky shows up in the room, you can move one room ahead because Dr. Lucky follows a very specific pattern where he goes to the next highest number. Dr. Lucky will move into that room with you and you'll get another turn. If Dr. Lucky moves into a room with a player, that player takes the next turn. So the turn order changes where Dr. Lucky ends up at. I understand. This means that you can sometimes take several turns in a row by walking ahead of Dr. Lucky. This is known as Dr. riding the Lucky Dr. train. Dr. Lucky! And it's a good way to move I want my $2, Dr. Lucky. If Dr. Lucky moves into a room with two or more players, the turn goes to the player who's next in order. Yeah, so and what that means is it can end up being your turn three or four times in a row. But the turns are usually really, really quick. I mean, you just move the meatball and go, unless you're spending your time pondering what you're going to do. It certainly isn't like resource management turns, no. No, no, nothing <laughs> like that. But it's still waiting. The thing about the small boards is it can be hard to get some alone time with Dr. Lucky. I mean, the <laughs> lines of sight are everywhere. Yeah. Right, yeah. The, the way you are considered alone in a room with Dr. Lucky is if you're in a room that doesn't have a door facing another room that has a person in it. With a straight yeah. line of sight. Yeah, orthogonal line of sight. Which is why I hung out in one of the corners of the house and didn't move. I just waited for Lucky to come around since the board was relatively small. It didn't take all that long for him to keep coming into my room. And mm. hello, Dr. Lucky. Oh, nobody else can see us? All right. Here you go. <laughs> give me the shiv. Move the doctor. Oh, hello, doctor. Hello. Let's see if nobody's ah, around. I'm going to murder, murder you. Murder. <laughs> that was a pretty interesting strategy. If Dr. Lucky was there, you would try to murder him. If he wasn't, you'd do a card. Yeah, the other action you can take is to draw a card if you're in a room by yourself that nobody can see. Once somebody makes a murder attempt on Dr. Lucky, everybody else gets a chance but doesn't have to contribute a card to that person's failure. It's kind of a weird cooperative game in that aspect. To me, it's a very Munchkin-esque mechanic. Yes, Munchkin. It actually reminds me of more of a bidding mechanic where you're like, I don't want to bid too high and waste my stuff and let the other person after me get away with it. So you're kind of bidding them up by not putting anything in or putting a small amount in and making them waste their better cards. I like how Celeste uh, used that mechanic to uh, basically bully everybody else into playing their 
they're uh, lucky cards. Yeah, that's that was the issue I had with it. I don't think that's a good idea that uh, other people can basically say, well, I'm not contributing, so the game is over unless you do it. Um, <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't love that. Well, <laughs> it's not that you're ending the game. You're forcing the other person to not lose by putting their big cards in. It's a bullying mechanic, and I kind of liked it. What do you guys think about this new edition, the 19, oh, sorry, 19 and a half anniversary edition of the game? 19 and a half anniversary? <laughs> so this game is by a company called Cheap Ass Games, and I don't know if I've talked about them before, but this is James Ernest, the guy that I've met at a couple of the cons, um, and he first made his games in manila envelopes with like all the pieces inside, like small, thin paper stuff. Really cheap, hence the name Cheap Ass, but also really fun. The old classic edition, like Mikey mentioned, with just paper map with basic graphics and paper cards. It didn't even include dice or meeples. You were expected to bring your own. <laughs> That's right. People <laughs> using bottle caps for their like uh, moving piece or uh, whatever they had around the house. <laughs> well, I'm glad they spent the money on the identity cards for this edition because I really enjoyed the interesting rationalizations for why Dr. Lucky is so universally hated but everyone has a different reason for hating <laughs> I, I thought that was fun, too. I, I was the newspaper boy who um, or girl, because each card has a girl side and a boy side. It was um, the newspaper boy, and he owed me money. So I just chased him around the board going, I want my $2. <laughs> Classic. So you have to use a weapon out of your hand to try to kill Dr. Lucky when you get alone with him. And they had some really interesting ones. I know you all heard about the frozen flounder. Um, they also had like chainsaws and stuff like that. But depending on the room you were in, it could double the strength of the weapon that you had. Yeah. Uh, how many cards were I dealt in which the, they said the weapon is times three in this room, but the room didn't exist because we played the short board. Yeah, oh, yeah. my whole <laughs> hand was like that. Yeah, I think everybody's hand was like that. Even even in the bigger houses, I think it would be hard to get that perfect combo where you ended up in the room, had no line of sight, Dr. Lucky was with you, and you had the weapon you needed. Well, you'd probably spend your time going to that room. You know what room it is. You have it in your hand. You see it on the board. Oh, hang out in that area of the house, yeah. My, my, my strategy did not yield in a victory, though, unfortunately. And even though we played the small board, it still seemed a little long for for what it is. I think they actually underestimated how much longer the game would be with a smaller board and more players because it was hard to get out of line of sight on such a small board. So I think maybe it plays faster on a big board, I'd argue. Dr. Lucky has been around a long time, so it has developed a pretty big fan base. And I've seen online quite a few fun additions to this game. I've seen a life-size version of the game online uh, where they play it at conventions. I've seen tons of people make up their own boards with their own rooms. Uh, there's folks that have made up boards that are multi-level. So the boards are actually elevated in some areas if you go upstairs. So that blocks out lines of sight. And some people have done really beautiful minis for this game. I think it would have been a lot of fun to move painted minis around the board. That could have added a lot to this game. I think a lot of that has to do with the classic version, not having any of those um, pawns or minis included in the game. So people use their own stuff like Lego minis or whatever. Okay, explorers, it's time to dig up or bury Kill Dr. Lucky. Joe? I wasn't thrilled with this game. Uh, like 
clue in other games like it. There's nothing to figure out. In the end, it's a race to see you know who gets lucky, uh, so to speak. Uh, I'm going to bury it. Evan? Well, the board obviously reminds me of Clue, but Clue without the deduction part. It's a cooperative game where you stop your opponents from winning, which means it can be kind of a kingmaker game, but I'll dig it up. Ed? The action is fast and chaotic. The different board layout can change just how difficult it is to kill the lucky doctor. While I'll try my luck again, I probably won't dig this up for my own collection. Mike? Well, I'm a little biased since I've seen this game grow up. Um, but it has some novel mechanics, and it's easy to learn, so I say dig it up. Though I would play this game over Clue any day, that's not enough for me to say dig it up. So I will bury it in the winter garden along with the body of Dr. Lucky. Mike, where can you find this game? You can find this in game stores and online for about 40 bucks. If you have thoughts about Kill Dr. Lucky, let us know. We are at Which Game First on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our next game up this week is 18 Lilliput, designed by Leonard Lonnie Orgler, published by Fox in the Box in 2018, number of players 1 to 4, ages 10 and up, playtime 60 to 90 minutes. Okay, when we shined a light on this find, what were our first thoughts? Mike? Lilliput makes it sound like it'll be a tiny train game. Maybe it'll be fast, too. Evan? Wait, Gulliver's Travels had... Trains? I must have forgotten that part of the story. Ed? An 18xx game for Lilliputin! Yay! Joe? I love train games. I love laying new track. I love updating my trains to newer models. I'm really looking forward to this. So are we the giants building the trains for the Lilliputians? And are the pieces really, really tiny? Before we find out, Evan, tell us how it's played. In 18 Lilliput, players start with a railroad corporation and a character that gives them a special ability. Each round, players select two action cards, each from a common pool, to undertake activities on behalf of their railroads. These actions include laying new track, upgrading track, buying trains, buying new shares, opening a new company, or simply getting cold, hard cash. Then, each company runs its trains and earns money, which can be withheld for future investments or paid out to the shareholders. After eight rounds, players add their cash and the value of their shares. Whoever has the most wins big. Big money. Tiny, tiny trains. <laughs> <laughs> so this game is touted as an entry-level gateway game to 18xx train games. What are 18xx train games? Ed? Yeah, Ed's the guy to describe these for sure. Well, 18xx games are a large series of train games that usually start with 18 in some other year. Like, for example, 1829 or 1825. Or 1830, for example. All right, and what are they? How do they play? They're more complicated than 18 Lilliput, right? Uh, they are generally uh, more complicated. They're started by Francis Tresen. And what they are is you own train companies and you're trying to build railroads and, well, make money. And what's <laughs> different about them is you actually separate your own money from the company money. So you're trying to invest money in the company, make them more valuable, and then maybe either dump shares once you, the company starts going bad, or maybe even own shares of other people's companies. 
And uh, a lot of it's it's all taking place in the 1800s. So a big part of the game is that you're laying new tracks and then upgrading the tracks. And as time goes on, you're upgrading your trains too. Yeah, the progress of you know, railroad technology went very, very fast in the earlier half of the 1800s. Mm-hmm. And that's why they can separate the different 18xx games into like 1825 and have another one of 1830. <laughs> you know, just that five year span so much happened that they can have a whole separate game about it. Well, usually each of the 18xx games are set in a different era. For example, 1825 is looking at England and Scotland, while 1830 is about the railroad rush in eastern United States. So this game is simplified, right? Uh, yes, there's a lot less going on in this game. It's still pretty interesting, and you still have most of the basic mechanics. You're running companies, and you're, you're putting buying stock in these companies, you're trying to make money, but instead of a big board where you put hex tiles on and there's a big stock market where the prices fluctuate wildly a lot of those mechanics are streamlined what's new in this game is you have a bunch of action cards in each turn you're taking a look at action cards and see what action you want to take do i want to build track do i want to you know upgrade my trains or do i want to buy more shares but you know there's only a limited number of cards and whoever takes the card that you might want you, you might not be able to get to do that action Right, which is one of the ways they streamlined it. I still had the same feeling after playing a bunch of the other 18xx games, but without so many actions to choose from each turn, which I thought was a good thing. They have these cards that have special abilities on them in this game, right? Yeah, they're, they're basically the little puting characters that have different uh, special abilities. Yeah, they're really cute. Like One of them looks like Jack Black. <laughs> <laughs> so they're they're little people, and they're helping you build your railroad? Oh, yeah. Like, one of them's the king of uh, Lilliput. And you're trying to build through Lilliput. Is that what's happening? Well, that's the land. Like, usually each of the 18xx games are set in the land. Well, this is set in the mythical land of Lilliput. I liked the look of this game. I enjoyed the art, um, although it was sort of that, again, benign face Euro game art. However, the train tracks looked really, really simple. What did you guys think of the, the components and the look of the build? Well, the, the look of the train track actually can stir a little controversy in the 18xx world. A lot of people like the really dark black line, where other people like the, the more stylized graphics. That's why the, the cards in this game were double-sided. They're square cards and they have track on them. One side has a really nice stylized graphic, but other people really appreciate the stark black and white graphics on the flip side. So the original 18xx games when they started were all those black lines, right? Correct. Well, the world was black and white in the 1800s. We all know that. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was sepia tone. Yeah, look at photographs from that time. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. So like the other 18xx games, this this has kind of a tricky mechanic in which, you know, you have your own personal money and you have money for the company. And they can only be spent on certain occasions in the game. And it gets kind of confusing to separate the two in your mind. I love that part of it. Well, that's one of the things I really like about it, too, because it really introduces that concept, which is hard for some people to grasp, is that not all the money is yours. When you put money into the company, it becomes the company's money, and it's not yours anymore, and only the director of the company gets to decide what the company does. The, the railroads had such a sprawling area in which their interests were a critical part of the land there and uh, where the land was, was critical to them, that it really, in an important way, gave rise to the stock exchange. And on all the 18xx games, well, most of them anyway, 
deal closely with the stocks that you buy. That's a very important part of those games. Yeah, I loved hedging my bets by buying stock in the companies of you know, all my rivals. <laughs> Just buy stock in Ed. Yeah, well. <laughs> so when you buy stock in, the, in others, that means you benefit from their success. Yes, right. that's right. And I, I would say that investing in his stock actually really made me a lot of money, which, which I was able to finance my own railroad. The players decide when they pay dividends too to the to the railroads they own. So they might want to pay a lot more dividends when nobody else has their stocks, and then later on don't pay them as often. But you do need to do it sometimes to make enough money to keep running the railroad. Like a big push and pull in the game is what they call the train rush, which is the early trains in the game rust and become obsolete. So you have to keep buying the newer trains, but that costs more and more money. Other players can help decide when the trains become obsolete by buying the new trains. So if a player makes your train obsolete and that's all you have is a bunch of obsolete rails, you're not going to make any money. Yeah, I, uh, I went out of my way to aggressively update my trains you know, as fast as I could. I, I didn't always choose the best routes for my trains to take. Uh, sometimes I set them in places that weren't that, where the runs weren't all that profitable, but I was able to consistently operate at a profit. Because of your updates? Yes. I mean, that's part of the trick of the game is deciding exactly how much to upgrade so it'll get you just what you need without spending more money than you need to. You want to be on the leading edge of technology, not the bleeding edge. <laughs> Another key thing about the 18x style game is there's almost no randomness in the game besides mm -hmm. the initial setup. Everything is, is driven by player actions and that's it. Yeah, that's what people love about this style of game is that they have nothing to blame but themselves, you know. They can't blame the dice rolls. They can't blame the draw. Can't blame the say, combination of setup cards that they got. Yep. Pretty yeah. much all your own actions and other people's actions dictate the pace of the game. Okay, explorers. It's time to dig up or bury 18 Lilliput. Joe? There's a lot of different aspects to this game, and they'll be fun at you know different levels for different people. There is so much going on in this game. It's very diggable. Evan? Oh, I didn't have the chance to play very unfortunate. I'm liking what I hear, and I hope to play soon. Mike? If you've never played an 18xx game, this is a really good way to get yourself introduced into it. It's very accessible, and I enjoyed it, so I'll dig it up. Ed? This is a nice, card-driven introduction to the world of 18xx games. It <laughs> offers a nice twist to the genre. It plays in much less time than a classic 18xx game. So dig it up. I like the sound of that. Shorter play time. <laughs> uh, it does look like a less intimidating version of 18xx games for sure, though I didn't get to play it, so I'll withhold my judgment for now. Ed, where can you find it? 18 Lilliput was funded by Kickstarter, and like many 18xx games, they often run out of print. So you may find it at resellers, one for about 45 bucks. If you have thoughts about 18 Lilliput, let us know. We are at Which Game First on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our last game up this week is The Perfect 10, designed by Keith Dugald, published by University Games in 2003. Number of players 2 to 6, ages 12 and up. Playtime 30 minutes. Okay, when we dusted the sands away from this find, Mike, what were your first thoughts? Will this be worth the pile of fiddly mixed magnets? We shall see. Evan? A trivia game with a magnetic swinging game board. That's a first for me. 
Ed? Trivia? Meek Mastermind? This shows some promise. Joe? The idea of facing the same questions over and over again until you get them right? It sounds intriguing. I gotta say, that vertical standing flippable magnetic tracking board is the coolest prop I've ever seen for a trivia game. But before we start guessing if it's fun, Evan, tell us how it's played. In the perfect 10, two teams race to score 10 correct answers in 10 different trivia categories, such as geography and science. Each question has four possible answers. Once teams finish answering their 10 questions, they flip over the vertical game board and score the other team's answers. Then they flip it back to show the other team how many were right, but not which ones. This leaves each team to use strategy to try to suss out which ones they got wrong and fix them. In the next round, teams can then change answers, but must be careful because they could end up changing answers that were already right and leave answers alone that were wrong. Maddening! (laughs) Teams will continue playing each round until someone, some team, gets all ten right. That is infuriating when you're not sure which one's wrong and your number goes down. (laughs) You had eight, Ah. right? And then you go to six. You're like, no! Darn it, I was so sure. It was such an ingenious device. It was so ingenious that it was hard to understand what they meant in the rules (laughs) when you were reading how to set it up. You're like, what is going to happen? Yeah. But once you get the hang of it, once you understand how they want you to track the the guessing and how you have 10 questions and those 10 questions are not going away. You're going to stick with those 10 questions round after round until somebody gets them all right. You're staying here until you get it right. <laughs> and and that's the mastermind part of this game. If you remember the old game Mastermind, you'd put out your four guesses and you would be told that some of them are correct or some are close to being correct. And you'd have to make changes You could go backwards and you could go changing things that were correct. So that's the mastermind (laughs) part of this game. One of the good things that it allowed, though, is each round after you've answered them all and they tell you how many you had right, you can pick one that you want to be sure of by asking the other team to give you the correct answer for one each round. Thank goodness for that. Oh, my. We'd go on forever if that wasn't the case. That was an integral part of the strategy, Mm -hmm. being able to ask. However, it's such a weird head game because there are times when you are convinced that you are right or wrong. (laughs) Like, there's no way this is right. I absolutely need the answer to this question. Other team, give me the answer. And it was the answer you had already. Or, you know, it's the exact opposite of what you thought. So it is the strangest thing playing this game. Yeah, similar to the trap we fell into. We got one wrong because we didn't see the word not. Not. Yes. Mm, That'll get you every time. Yes. Which one of these is not an art style attributed to Picasso? (laughs) (laughs) You were reading it as which one was an art style. Yeah, we're like arguing. It's like, no, cubism is one of these. I'm pretty sure he did surrealism. (laughs) No, he was a surrealist. And and it's like, no, he's a cubist. (laughs) And and we were both right. And the question is sitting there in front of you the whole time. Oh, yeah. No excuse for reading it wrong that many times. And what was that other weird answer? The orange period or the... The blue period. Yeah, blue period. Yes. Which was real. I remember a blue period. 
that's the thing about this game. It me- it meshes two things that we are so not used to meshing, which is trivia and strategy. And we just get focused on one or the other, and we just can't blend the two. Or trivia or logic. We, we assume that trivia doesn't involve logic, and it's just, oh, well, you either know it or you don't. Right. But there was a lot of like logic in this game by deciding which ones to narrow down and which ones to switch. And I think that that was a really welcome part of this game because I usually get bored with trivia games, but I love logic games. So it kept me interested the whole time. Some of the questions were very difficult, but I think that switching your brain power from logic to trivia, trivia, it was really tough. And Mm -hmm. I was an absolute detriment to my partner, Evan. (laughs) (laughs) It's all right. I suffered it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you were very graceful about it. But when it came to the logic piece, I was so fixated on the questions that I couldn't switch gears well at all. So (laughs) you guys would flip the board back over, tell us how many questions we got right. And then came the logic time. And I was just stuck on the questions. And Evan's like, well, yeah, but we're really talking about which ones are right and wrong now, not the questions themselves. And I'm like, yeah, right. but, but, but. No, but, but, but I have to check this box before I move on. I was really lucky that each round I knew for sure one of the answers. And it was always the music category. Yeah. Like, well, that uh, was kind of neat that we all had a category that we were good at. It offers folks who aren't that into trivia a really great interest in the games right it offers them a way to get into the game well i was also surprised at how difficult the questions were they were really good questions well multiple choice solves the problem yeah yeah the right answer is in there somewhere i was surprised joe didn't just say just oh these are the answers and now it's over joe's usually so good at this well there's lots of categories there that aren't for everybody though you know that's very diverse yeah like sports thank goodness evan was on my team oh no problem got you there Sports was rough on our side of the table. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was usually one of the ones we said, you know, just give us this answer. We- <laughs> yeah, that was one of them. We, we gave up on sports real fast. <laughs> Don't even waste our energy. Just I'm like, it. literally, it could be any one of these people. Just give us the answer. This is <laughs> silly, but I had a hard time wrapping my mind around the colored stickers we were using. Yeah, the little magnets were colored to match the answer. So when you flip it over, they see if the color on their little dot on their card matched the color magnet you put there. But one of the magnets was supposed to be purple, but it was orange. What happened So that messed there? me up for yeah. the whole game. Just what? a bad printing, I guess. They were kind of fiddly to work with, and plus the colors, they even uh, were a little close. Like, the blue and the purple were hard to distinguish on the cards sometimes. The colors were way too close together, a terrible blend of colors, and yes, purple dots represented with orange magnets was a real killer. (laughs) (laughs) And the purple and blue was what, like a half a shade off of each other? You could barely tell the difference. And they were little slivers of a magnet, so they're really hard to like pick up and they all stuck together (laughs) in the box. It's just this one clump of different colored magnet strips. Yeah, but I sorted them out for you, Mike. I took that job. (laughs) We appreciate that. Joe gave up and couldn't find a piece of paper and a pencil fast enough so he could start kind of keeping track of the game in his own way that yeah, made sense. Yeah, he's like, forget this magnetic <laughs> like, nonsense. forget yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, the game did tell us some way to help keep track of stuff. For example, they told you to put the question that you asked to get the correct answer with by putting two of the same color in that box. 
Yeah, but even that was a little bit clunky because you may have to keep track of an an extra thing on top of that, such as these are the ones we might want to change. So I kind of angled the magnetic pieces on those so I could sort of think about them as changing them. (laughs) And then I'm fixing, Celeste, these are crooked. Let me fix these for you. (laughs) She's like, no, I'm doing something here. Well, another thing you have to be careful during the game is that you're, you know, you're trying to count up how many questions that each person, each team got right. And you can't point to the board and say, yes, no, no, yes, on the other side. Because then when you flip it over, they're like, oh, we got that one right. We didn't get that one right because they're right. watching what you right. did with your hand. So, so this is a no. Okay, no. so how do we mark the no? No, no. Wait, what am I Are you at? telling us which are we, ones are no's are by good? pointing to the no, board? No, 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 I'm just marking. No, I'm marking. Well, it doesn't matter. You're about to see your score. Right, but you just told us which ones were wrong. We did? Yeah, but so what? You're about You've to see which ones them. are wrong. No, you don't tell us which ones are wrong. You tell us how many are wrong. Oh. <laughs> yeah, there were definitely some clunky parts. And yet, I'm still so impressed with this flip over board. It <laughs> flips like a whiteboard, you know, in a TV show where you see everybody get smacked in the chin with the board as it flips over. They had a great concept. Really neat for a trivia game. Really, really neat. They just need to make the magnets a little stronger, make them a little bit bigger, maybe. So this was published by a fairly small game company called University Games. Um, But, you know, contrary to what you might think they put out, it's not an educational game company. They put out all kinds of games, everything from like games for young kids. They have Eric Carl's Hungry Caterpillar Bingo matching game. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Yeah. All the way up to like mature games like Don't Drink and Draw. Or this game where you have to sort of, <laughs> sort of an apples to apples version of a game with racy pictures is another one and that sort of thing. <laughs> Who They're can punch re- the lightest? Right. <laughs> <laughs> They're pushing a game right now, which looks kind of interesting. That's called Stupid Deaths. You have the deaths of a historical person written out and you try and guess if the description is correct or incorrect as to how they died. Yeah. Well, that's just fun to read the cards. You don't even need a game for that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay, explorers, get your shovels out. It's time to dig up or bury the perfect 10. Ed? I'm not a big fan of trivia games, but this one brings in a nice little strategy element that's just enough to keep me interested. Plus, it doesn't hurt the questions are all multiple choice. So, I'll dig it up. Joe? I argued with teammates, agonized over questions. I counted the number of questions I got right, and I changed the answers for next round. <laughs> and then always came back with the exact same number of questions right. It was so frustrating, I didn't want to stop. So it's worth digging up. <laughs> it takes a little getting used to. The components are nice, despite the unfortunate choice of colors. For a multiple-choice style trivia game, it works. Dig it up. Mike? The pieces are kind of fiddly. The layout is weird. But as far as trivia games go, I had a really good time with this one. So dig it up. Yeah. Combining trivia with strategy was a brilliant idea for broadening the interested player base. I am going to dig it up. This game is widely available online for anywhere from 10 to 30 bucks. If you have thoughts about the perfect 10, let us know. We are at Which Game First on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And that brings us to the end of our show. We look forward to hearing about all the game exploring you've done. 
If you'd like more perks and content from our show, including exclusive episodes, and now our weekly post-show podcast, for just three bucks a month, you can go to our website and click on Become a Supporter today. If you get a chance, please leave us a rating or a review. Anywhere online, it really helps others find the show. Join our chat on our Discord server. We are at Which Came First, and our Patreon subscribers get access to exclusive channels. Happy gaming, explorers! Hey, Celeste, what's a sausage tree? Oh, my God, don't get me started. A what? Lilliput Rails proudly announces our top-of-the-line cat catchers of our newest locomotives. At Lilliput Rail, we take our passenger safety seriously and check out our new dining cars. Toot, toot! 